0: The Rock, the Scores, NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Casharo, and I am joined as always by co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? We're back. A week off. I was
1: waylaid by a really unfortunate illness that prevented us from doing. Oh goodness, I I didn't even ponder having anything resembling a flu game on this podcast. I was completely knocked out, but that obviously uh, prevented us from doing any kind of like playoff preview pod talking about the play-ins at all like we're just instead diving right in in the middle of the first round here so
0: yeah i'm just mad i didn't uh get to hold like 11 theoretical guns to your head asking about every series potential conference finals that's now. the one silver lining of all yes. this i didn't have to go on
1: record putting <laughs> yeah, any predictions yeah. down with that theoretical gun to my head or whatever other scenario you cooked up where yeah. my my <laughs>
0: family with the wolf my family, family leg-
1: was- my family legacy is at yeah. stake for some reason. Okay. I'm back. I'm ready to talk about some playoff hoops, and it's, uh, yeah, it's weirdly liberating, honestly, not having had all of that that preview content to, to sift through and then having it get blown up within like one weekend of basketball, because uh, I feel like that is what would have happened. It was a, yeah. a pretty hectic start. But I don't think we're not going to cover everything today, right? Because it's just too much to get to. So let's let's make this manageable for ourselves and parcel it up.
0: Yeah, we're going to cover four of the eight first round series today. And then we are going to be back, barring more DNP flus. Hopefully I don't get what Wolfon had or something, but... uh Barring that, we are going to be back later this week and we'll tackle the other four series that we don't talk about today. Also, obviously, unless you know, you're know you an NBA fan whose head has been buried in the sand, you know that some pretty big injuries have already been uh, one of the key storylines to the first few days of the playoffs. But I think it just makes sense that way we-, we will bake talk of those injuries into the series we're talking about we're going to talk about the series that are impacted by those injuries anyway so we can save a little bit of time uh by doing that and then also you know talking about those injuries a couple of those injuries have led to debates about the uh, block charge call in basketball we'll find time for that later in the show too so for now let's just jump into the four series and i guess since i was just Referencing those injuries, why don't we start with a series that's had two pretty significant injuries take place already, even though they're only one game in, and that is Bucks Heat, where the NBA's number one overall seed fell at home in game one to those plucky Miami Heat who lost Tyler Hero in the game to a broken hand, and he's out four to six weeks, but the Bucks, of course, lost. Giannis Antetokounmpo in the game I think he lost him in the second quarter so he essentially missed two and a half of the four quarters in game one with what everyone thought was a back or tailbone injury because of a, a really hard fall he took but then they're also saying there's a wrist issue now too x-rays are all negative that's obviously the good thing the Bucks sound encouraged about his progress so hopefully he can play game two but if not definitely doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would sideline him much longer than that whereas with Hero. He's obviously out uh, much longer and barring a really miraculous run by Miami here. His season is over. So where do you want to start in this Bucks heat series that has gotten off to a, uh, a surprising start from a results perspective, but also an unfortunate one from an injury perspective? Yeah,
1: I don't know. I, I think if Giannis is okay to come back and you know, even if he's not at a hundred percent and honestly, even if he has to miss like another game, I still feel pretty okay about Milwaukee here, like especially with hero sidelined. I just I mean, the Heat had an incredible offensive game in game one against, you know, maybe at full throttle, the best defense in basketball. And look, it's no defense in this day and age is perfect. Like every defense has to give up something and the Bucks defense has some holes, like there are ways to exploit it and things you can get, especially, you know, kind of in the middle of the floor against that deep drop and against Miami's offense in particular, which is predicated on, you know, like a lot of the delay sets with Bam initiating possessions from the top of the floor. They're going to have Brooke sag way off of him and they're going to try to stay attached to the guys coming off of those dribble handoffs and pin downs around him and like i've said this before miami's offense kind of goes the way that bam's touch in the middle of the floor goes and his touch in the middle of the floor was quite good in that game one and that really helped it also obviously really helped that the heat shot 60% from 3 but i do think you know the bucks could stand to tighten things up like i just don't think they were quite physical enough and not like fast enough to the ball. You know, like their closeouts were a little bit lackluster. They just didn't have the intensity that you usually see from them. And obviously Giannis being out is a huge part of that. But I still think even in that shorthanded state against a not very good Miami Heat offense that was in even worse shape than it usually is in with Tyler Hero out of the picture, uh, I, I thought they could have done a better job. But again, I think like the Heat just probably aren't going to shoot like that again Um, or if they do like it they're not going to do it enough times to win the series I will say I think like some of the bigger picture issues I like spotlighted with the Bucks in the past just about them being a little bit creaky kind of slow not that athletic obviously that's all compounded with Giannis out of the lineup but like that that sort of came to bear I think in in that game where like they were sneakily like not a very good transition team during the regular season honestly at either end of the floor Uh, although on defense it was more a question of of volume than efficiency like they defended transition plays well but they just gave up a ton of them and you know I thought Miami really sort of handily won that battle in game one where the stat that really jumped out at me was that Milwaukee played 87% of their possessions in the half court. Well, wow. you know, like that's, I just think that's entirely too many for them. And that is exactly what Miami's defense wants, right? Like they want to grind this down and be able to get their defense set and sort of bog uh, Milwaukee down in the mud. And you know, it's like the, their half court offense was honestly fine, but uh, at both ends of the floor, I feel like they kind of lost the transition battle and
0: it's not really what you want to see. I would imagine that losing that first game, whether you want to call it a wake-up call or whatever, and if Giannis is back facing an 0-1 hole still at home, I would imagine we'll see something close to the full throttle version of Bucks defense in game two. But yeah, in terms of the the heat shooting numbers and the reason I'm not that concerned, you know, if I'm Milwaukee, is I don't know if you saw uh, the Ringers, Zach Cram tweeted it, but uh per the second spectrum tracking numbers in terms of shot performance versus expected shot performance which is based on second spectrum shot quality obviously takes into account location of the shot who's shooting it I think defender as well the heat overperformed their shot their expected shot performance more than any team in the last five postseasons has now <laughs> i I understand that there like people will say yeah but at the end of the day the, like the name of the game is putting the ball in the basket it is what it is that's what they did they won the game and hundred percent and if this was a one-game situation, the Bucks would be shit out of luck. But it's a best-of-seven series. And yeah, the sample size is smaller than, say, an 82-game sample, but the Heat are who they are, and their offense is what it is. And it played out like that over the course of 82 games for a reason. They are not going to have a once-every-half-decade type of outlier shooting night again in this year. At least I don't think so. I would bet against it. And if they don't have those kind of nights it's going for, to be tough for them to score enough on the Bucks to really compete in the series, especially without Tyler hero, who is very important to helping them even keep that offense somewhat afloat. So I think the bucks, look, I'm not saying, you know, shouldn't be worried at all. They lost game one at home. Giannis is banged up. I get it. But I just think a lot had to go into that game for them to even lose it. And, and they should be fine. I'm with you. I think, if he if he's healthy i I think they could just rip off four straight now if he's banged up, but like still in the lineup, I think they'll be fine and I, if he missed another game or two, I might still pick Milwaukee in this series,
1: yeah, definitely a positive sign that middleton at least offensively looked pretty middleton ish in that game. like I thought he did a a pretty good job sort of piloting that offense. I mean, holiday wound up with what sixteen assists in that game as well, like again. Their half court offense was actually surprisingly strong. It's just uh, like they could afford to tighten up the defense and then they're going to be able to bank on, I think, some shooting regression from Miami. And then obviously like without Hero, if they can keep shooting the ball like that, or even like comparably, you know, between like Gabe Vincent and Kevin Love and Max Struce and all the guys who, who really got loose um, against that defense in game one, like That's going to keep the Bucks honest. It's maybe gonna get them out a drop a little bit or like force them to bring that drop a little bit higher up. But like typically speaking, Hero is like their most reliable drop buster. You know, like he is the guy who is generally gonna open up the rolling lanes for Bam by getting the screen defender to play up a little higher or commit a little bit earlier. And without that, I, I just sort of see the Bucks and Brooke Lopez like content to, to keep sitting back in that drop and, and dare the heat to prove that they can shoot the ball like that again. And, you know, as long as they're able to clean some stuff up and transition and force Miami into the half court a little bit more, get their own offense out and transition a little bit more. I I think this matchup is going to look a lot more like we expected it to, but maybe not. I mean, maybe like maybe Giannis has to miss more time and maybe that is you know, enough of a hinge to to swing this in Miami's direction. We'll, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, and that would obviously throw a wrench into the entire playoff picture. All right, let's hop over to the West, where the other series impacted by a star injury is going on, and another series that began with the lower seed winning on the road, although, in my opinion, I wouldn't even call it an upset, and that is Lakers-Grizzlies, where the Lakers are up one nothing, and John ja Morant left Game 1 with a hand or hand and or wrist injury but uh, just actually before we started recording Shams reported that his x-ray like everything's negative there don't believe there's any structural damage and with him it is just going to be a pain tolerance type of thing but his status for game two is still up in the air other than not having jaw what did you see in that game that perhaps made you more of a believer in the Lakers either big picture or in this series or that you saw that maybe you think is an easy fix for Memphis. What do you think in after game one of Lakers Grizzlies? Other than Austin Reeves deserves a hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah,
1: that dude is gonna mess around and get himself a max, right? Like
0: if he dude, if he, he keeps I, like, doing this? People are gonna laugh at us like thinking we're just kind of joking here, but Austin Reeves is really effing good, man. Like he is- I don't think really-
1: it's a joke at all. Like, so to be clear, he is arenas limited, which means his max is only actually um I think that it nets out to four years ninety nine million. Yeah. I, I don't wanna like get into the ins and outs of the he's, arenas provision
0: right now, but he's a twenty three year old guard who can be like a secondary ball handler, uh, can functionally run an offense, can shoot, defends his ass off, like I mean, he was he was it. their he
1: was their primary ball handler down the stretch of that game yeah. like he took yeah. over in crunch time running pick and roll with ad like he i mean between his scoring chops and he can score in a variety of ways right like that pull-up jumper is obviously there but he can get himself to the rim he can get himself to the free throw line he's a really crafty ball handler and he's an excellent passer like he kind of has the whole offensive package and he can play with or without the basketball so I don't know. I don't really see why not like the, the Lakers will basically have the option to match any offer sheet that he gets up to that four year, $99 million max. That's what the kind of arena's rule allows them to do. And the way that it works is like, he is capped at being able to get like the full mid-level exception in year one. And then like a 5% bump on that in year two but then he can go all the way up to like the full max amount in years three and four, which would just like, look hilarious as a structure on the Lakers books. Um, They themselves are limited in terms of like what they can offer him to um, like just a normal salary structure that would start at that like full mid-level amount. Um, But because he's an RFA and because his starting number would just like be that mid-level amount, they, despite being over the cap and we're assuming they're going to operate as like an over the cap team would just be able to match it. uh, If another team puts that offer on the table. And honestly, I think at this point, like why not? If you, if you were another team with cap space around the league, why wouldn't you put that offer in front of them? Anyway? Yeah, that's, that's a bit of a tangent, but he, he was incredible in that game. He has been incredible all season. 69% 69% true shooting this year, like one of the best foul drawers in the game. He was incredible. He was incredible in that game, and I it was, it was really wild to watch down the stretch. LeBron kind of just chilling, right? Like taking a back seat. He hit one big three in crunch time, but it was really just him hanging out on the wing, and like the Lakers running a side pick and roll with D'Lo and Anthony Davis. And Dylan Brooks sliding over to come and bring nail help and D'Lo just like making the throw ahead pass to LeBron on the opposite wing and he gets the three that way. Like just, just like any average sort of like spot up shooter, you know, role player playing around like the, the star's actual pick and roll game. Um, but instead it's LeBron doing it. Yeah, I thought that was... That was pretty wild. And we know, you know, he's, de- he's probably not 100%. He's dealing with this foot injury that, according to him, you know, multiple doctors told him needed to be surgically repaired. But uh, he he found the LeBron James of feet who told him that he could play through it. And now here he is. I mean, he he was solid in that game. But he was like the Lakers' fourth best player. Yeah. Behind, it's pretty behind Behind AD, who had a monstrous defensive game. And that's like an important point that we should get into talking about. Rui Hachimura, who, I mean, that's that's not going to happen again. But like, who cares? He, they banked that win because exactly. Rui scored 29 points on 11 for 14 shooting. Anyway, yeah, I mean, look, that game was back and forth and it was super close until Jaw went out, right? I think they were down four when he got injured with a little over five minutes to play. And then it obviously just got completely out of hand from that point on. So yeah, whether or not Ja is able to play and what condition he's in if he does come back and play is going to be a huge determining factor here. I I think the big thing is like man, you're not that this is some big surprise, but like you're really feeling those front court absences for Memphis, right? And the Steven Adams one, like you look at their offensive rebounding, which was just such a huge part of their success during the regular season. They had like 13% offensive rebound rate in that game one. We we know their offense struggles in the half court, uh, you know, on first shot possessions anyway. And like, if they're not generating those second chances, then, well, they're just going to struggle in the half court
0: period. So during the regular season, the difference between Adams on and Adams off was the uh, essentially was like the equivalent of the, the best offensive rebounding team and the 20th ranked offensive rebounding team for a team, again, as you mentioned, really struggles to score in the half court on the yeah. first shot. And like, don't discount
1: Adam's screening too. Ooh. You know, Ooh. like I thought there were a lot of times in that game where, whether it was Desmond Bain coming off like a wide pin or whether it was Jaw like trying to get going downhill out of a high pick and roll. I thought the Lakers on ball defenders were kind of able to stay attached maybe a little bit better than they would have if, if they had, you know, that cinder block there and Adams rubbing people out of the play. And, you know, you really felt the the absence of Brandon Clark too, I thought, just because him not being there makes it harder to get to the, to those Jaren at five lineups, or at least the best Jaren at five lineups, which is what I feel like the Grizzlies kind of need to do because they need to find a way to get AD moving a bit more. Like, He was just, I thought, entirely too comfortable in that game one, whether he was helping off of Tillman or, you know, playing drop, but just ready to commit to the ball at a moment's notice and not really worry about Tillman doing damage as a role man, clearly not getting spaced out at all. He, like, he gave them nothing at the rim. Like, even Ja. He, and Ja had, I thought, a decent, offensive game before he got hurt but like he was forced to rely on like mid-range jumpers and floaters because ad was just in his way every time tracking him in space and anytime Ja actually like tried him at the rim it didn't go particularly well and then also like the lakers are just playing those pick and rolls two on two so jaw's not getting those playmaking opportunities either and that's why like he ends up with I think six turnovers against two assists and no free throws like that's that's a problem that they got to figure out how they're going to solve and um, with without the front court depth I just feel like they're going to be hard pressed to do it
0: yeah it it kind of feels like they just don't have enough weapons and I mean the front court depth is its, it's its own issue and that hinders especially with Adams with the offensive rebounding and screening that hinders the offense in its own way but I don't know like you watch them and it really does feel like they don't have enough weapons for this time of year. It feels like they're kind of out of answer. And I, I, maybe that sounds nuts because we're one game in and I'm not saying this is going to be a quick series, but it does feel like offensively, they might be learning that there still isn't enough there to quite get where they want to get or think they could have got this year in the postseason.
1: Well, we'll see. I mean, if Jaw can come back and be something resembling Jaw. And they can keep getting that type of performance out of Jaron, who was unbelievable in his own right in that game. And like really like he punished the Lakers for putting LeBron on him, right? Yeah. Like he didn't let LeBron off the hook. Uh, he had a huge offensive game. So if he can keep doing that and like, you know, Jock can come back and they can like, like Desmond Bain can get going a little bit more.
0: Yeah. He did um, have a good
1: game. Yeah. I thought it was pretty interesting. Actually, the Lakers decision to put Vanderbilt, on Morant, and you know Reeves did a really good job I thought tracking Desmond Bain off yep. of the ball so like the Lakers do have defensive answers but to, to say that the Grizzlies are out of answers themselves is like I think going a little bit too far no, like this think, is
0: I don't think they're out of answers like schematically I'm not saying there's nothing they can come up with to change this. I'm saying big picture wise on the offensive end I just don't know if they have enough weapons
1: well one thing that they definitely need to do better is like they, they need to win the transition battle, right? Like sort of similar, I guess to the, the Milwaukee Miami game where it's like, I don't know. The Lakers kind of handily won that battle in game one, I thought. And that is like for Memphis, absolutely unequivocally, they have to be dominating that battleground because of the, you know, the half court limitations that we have talked about ad nauseum. Like, especially without the offensive rebounding component, like they really need to be getting out and running, taking advantage of the the speed edge that they have. Um, you know, not that the Lakers are like a slow team, but they're certainly older and shouldn't be able to keep up with Memphis. Like the, the Lakers should not be the team that is dominating in transition. Uh, and I do feel like that's what happened in game one. So I guess if Jaws not playing, that becomes a much more difficult task for Memphis, like he is very much the head of the snake when it comes to their transition game, but I don't know, they gotta they gotta find a way to to amp up their pace and and make the Lakers hurt a little bit, you know, turn them over a little bit more, like get out in the open floor and sort of try to wear them down that way.
0: Yeah, and also we talked about the Miami's outlier shooting performance. The Lakers, I think weren't they five of twenty to start this game? And I think they finished on an 11 of 17 tear Hmm. from deep. So they ended up 16 of 37, but they're not a good shooting team. Getting Russell and Beasley at the deadline and getting Reeves back from injury juiced their shooting and uh, their shooting numbers. But it was like, a significant difference but the difference was still 30th to 20th in three-point percentage and three-pointers made per 100 possessions went from I think 30th to 21st or twenty second. like they still weren't a good shooting team and when I did that piece last week about like looking for one potentially fatal flaw in each west contender for the Lakers I did say their shooting could undo them and when they were five of 20 from deep early in that game I was like well this this is kind of what's going to hold them back I think they're doing everything else pretty well but if you can't you know, they're, they're creating some good looks, but if you can't knock them down, it's going to be hard to win in 2023. And then they, I think, yeah, like I said, I think it was 11 of their final 17 went in. I'm curious to see, because I thought even after the deadline, I thought they would be an even better shooting team than they actually were. Yeah, I think ultimately, the, like defense is still where Memphis is going to have
1: to win this series, I think. I think they can have a better defensive performance certainly against this Lakers offense than they did in game one and and some of that is just maybe the Lakers shooting regressing a bit like certainly guys like Rui I mean maybe Austin Reeves can just keep doing that as like an off the dribble shooter again 69% true shooting during the regular season like that number still blows my mind I can't yeah for a guard I can't believe that's real but um yeah, I don't know. And I mean in terms of some of the other role players going off, I guess, uh the the Grizzlies could maybe hope for a bit of regression there. Um But yeah, like I kind of a, a encouraging game one win for the Lakers and discouraging for the Grizzlies, and obviously so much hangs in the balance with the state of jaws, hand, fingers, whatever it is, <laughs> that um I don't know, you're certainly not feeling comfortable right now as a memphis grizzlies employee or fan
0: yeah they should be a lot less confident than the bucks are down one nothing all right you want to take the break come back talk about two more series yeah let's do that what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android that's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet light-hearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Alright, let's save the best of the four, in my opinion, for last today, and so for now, let's go to Sixers, which I actually think is the biggest mismatch in this year's playoffs. People might debate that but because the way i see it is you know even though milwaukee finished with the best record miami they're still like, they're grimy. They'll make it annoying. They've got Jimmy Butler. Atlanta's got the Trey Young factor where I don't think they have any chance of hell beating Boston, but it's like, you never know. Trey could have a random like 40-10 game. The Nets give them a lot of credit. I've given Jacques Vaughn a lot of credit for the way he's kept that team together. And it's fun watching Mikael Bridges kind of figure out what he can do as a, as a number one option. Claxons, like I like them, but in terms of like how much they can really threaten and scare the higher seeded team they're playing I, I just don't really buy it and I, I think this is the biggest mismatch in the playoffs I would be surprised if it's anything but a sweep thought the Nets played them well in game two still came out on the losing end so any interesting observations from a series that I don't think we'll get to talk about for very long if if any more episodes at all
1: well I mean the observation is kind of what you just said right and I think that that game two hammered at home if it hadn't already been hammered at home like just how few buttons the nets actually have to push in this matchup you know like they played one of their only major tactical trump cards i thought in game two which is that they played claxton 20 minutes they shelved dayron sharp and just played without a center for the majority of the game And I thought that made sense because their strategy from the start of the series has been, we're going to hard double team Joel Embiid every time he touches the ball, no matter where he touches it. And so if they're going to stick with that, they might as well put a small on him, right? Like you're bringing the double anyway, and this way you can at least try to stretch him out at the other end of the floor. And it actually worked well for a while. Like the Sixers played a God awful first half in game two, like, comically bad they had no offensive rhythm they couldn't stop turning the ball over I they couldn't hit shots Harden was a disaster for the entire game Harden looked like he
0: thought it was game seven instead of game two
1: (laughs) man we got to talk about Harden actually at some point because if we're if we're looking ahead some serious red flags there but awful Sixers first half the Nets were, you know, like Cam Johnson was a heat pump. He couldn't miss. The Nets as a team were red hot from three point range. And they went into the half with a five point lead, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it was sort of at that point, I was like, this is pointless, man. Like, like, great for the Nets for trying stuff and playing really hard and making the Sixers play badly. But also, they, you know, this is as bad as the Sixers can play. And it's a five point game. Like, there's just not.
0: They're punching a lot of too hope far above their weight.
1: You know, and sure enough, in the second half, the Sixers started picking apart the doubles and like Tobias Harris started flashing to flash into the dunker spot and, you know, finishing there or grabbing offensive rebounds. Maxi obviously popped off because Maxi is tailor-made to torch scrambling defenses on the backside of double teams. Like that's what he does, whether as a, as a shooter or just a, an off-the-catch attacker. And then the Nets really cooled off from deep. The Sixers started going zone to counter the Nets' five-out lineups, and that worked pretty effectively. Embiid completely shut off the paint. Like he was insane defensively. The Nets got absolutely nothing inside. And you know, that was that was sort of it. Like the Nets eventually they started trying to single cover Embiid because they were getting picked apart on the doubles. And I actually thought that worked a little bit better just in smaller spurts. Not that it would over the course of a game. But, like, just to mix more of that in than bringing the auto-double every time, especially if Embiid's catching the ball at, like, the top of the key yeah. or above the three-point line where he's, like, 25-plus feet from the basket. Like, in a lot of cases, I think that's giving them a an easy out, like, just letting them kickstart, you know, these swing-swing sequences and get their offense into motion where... I don't know, maybe you want to try and induce a bit more stagnancy in the Sixers offense and the way to do that is to show a little bit more single coverage and not not give them that auto, you know, rotation essentially every time down the floor because I think Embiid has dealt with those double teams really well.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. One of the notes I had made is I can't remember, I think it was Grant Hill who was doing the color commentary on that game, but he was mentioning in the first half like how impressed he was by the varied schemes the nets were throwing at him, to the Sixers and like the 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 variance in the in the doubles and, and triple teams they were sending at him. And I was like, man, I don't maybe I'm not watching the same game. Cause to me it seems like there it's actually a very predictable form of sending extra bodies to him. They were doing it because Embiid was catching the ball like around the perimeter on the elbows. They were doing it very far from the basket and to your point. It was kind of letting the Sixers at least have avenues to get good shots and the Sixers weren't finding those shots or making them in the first half but in the second half when the Nets defensive scheme was still exactly the same they were sending the doubles from the same places and Bede was catching the ball in the same areas him and his teammates started finding those shots whether it was because of better off ball movement that that led to just like a, a better flowing offense they were finding the open shots that were being obviously created by the fact the Nets were sending two or three to the ball every time Embiid caught it twenty five feet from the hoop. And they were making those shots too after finding them. And it, it that was kind of lights out for them. And I'm not even necessarily blaming the Nets. Like I, I don't know how much more they can really do in this matchup. The one question I'd have for you is so I agree with you that this is the this is the first year I've really thought Embiid has improved significantly, like visibly. When it comes to how he deals with those double teams and sometimes a third body, finding guys, being a little more patient. Like even last night, I thought, I think he ended up taking 11 or 12 shots with free throw. I think it was like 15 shooting possessions. But I think in the past, he would have forced a little more in those situations. And I thought last night he did a much better job of being a little more patient, letting things play out around him, letting the Sixers do some stuff off the ball to give him options while facing those double and triple teams. He still finished with eight turnovers uh, to seven assists. And what I was going to ask you is, is there any part of you that's concerned that he's still not necessarily crisp enough in those situations? Or maybe it's the Sixers offense that isn't where, yeah, it'll work right now and they can punish a team like the Nets for it. But say, looking ahead to round two, it won't fly against Boston. I do think part of it is like the Sixers are just a little bit too static around
1: him too much of the time um and some of it is is the reads but like I think him sort of making the nail in that part of the floor his office rather than like the low post has made a lot of those reads easier for him like he can just see more of the floor from there and I think where the doubles start to really bother him is like less from that position and more like when he's putting the ball on the floor and then you're springing a double team on him, like when he's going to make a move and it's coming from a direction he can't see you're doing it along the baseline. Like that's, that's where it's super effective. Whereas like at the top of the floor where he can see it coming every time, it's just, he's gotten really practiced at dealing with that. It's not that difficult to read. And I'm not saying like what he's doing is easy, like, and he's definitely gotten better at it and that's a really important development, but A defense like Boston, for instance, I just think is going to have more options and they're going to vary things up a little bit more. It's not going to be as predictable for him. And, you know, it's going to be incumbent on him and the rest of the Sixers to to be able to deal with that. And to my earlier point, just to like like the rest of the Sixers can't be just sort of standing around. I actually thought in the second half of that game against the Nets, like they did a much better job um, of sort of shifting their offense around him in order to open up better stuff. And another thing is like, so in the first half of that game, like I saw a lot of people just griping about how the, you know, the, the nets were guarding him with like Royce O'Neal, Dorian Finney Smith. And the Sixers like, couldn't enter him the ball in the post. Like he wasn't even getting those touches. And they had a miserable first half offensively, but I actually thought like that had more to do with them trying a little bit too hard to get him the ball in those spots where the nets are like fronting him aggressively. And like, they have the guy coming on the backside. They're basically like double teaming him before the catch. And the Sixers are eating like 10 seconds of shot clock, trying to find an angle to enter the ball to him. Whereas like, if that's the coverage, if they're fronting and they have that guy already rotating over on the backside, I think like what you want to be doing is just zipping the ball around and taking advantage of the fact that like somebody is going to be open And rather than eating all that clock, trying to make an entry pass, like just almost sort of take what they're giving you. And that's kind of like I I thought their issue in the first half was more about like trying too hard to find a way to enter in the ball than it was, you know, about them, them not being able to do it. Like I thought they they could have found better stuff just by sort of like, oh, okay like we have an opening here. Let's skip it to the weak side and see what we get out of that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's actually a perfect segue to talk about James Harden, as you mentioned we could, because I think James Harden had a phenomenal year, but he's, I mean, he's, whatever, he's getting older, he's been around a long time, it's natural that he's not going to be what he was a few years ago at his MVP prime, but there was a time when, if you had told me, James Harden would be on the court while someone else on his team was having multiple bodies sent at him, and now you, you could put the ball in James Harden's hand with a mathematical advantage, I'd say it's lights out for the opposing team. And that just doesn't seem to be as inevitable of an option as it would have been, say, a few years ago. And I think that is part of the problem is that Harden just isn't the player he used to be. You were talking about it as early as last year, even before they matched up with the Raptors about how his inability to break a defense down as consistently as he could and get to the rim and get by that first defender hinders him and the Sixers because he's a lot more reliant now on those step backs like those used to be a component of his game whereas now he is much more reliant on that step back game working on his jump shot falling and it was the same thing last night and I don't know what he finished with but at one point he was three of 12 and I think he was like two of seven on two point attempts I think that actually might have been what he finished with on two point attempts
1: well he's two for 13 on two point attempts in the series and he's two for 12 in the
0: paint so I think that is part of what you're seeing when they are maybe force feeding Embiid sometimes.
1: Well, he's also dealing with this Achilles thing, right? Like that's maybe part of it. And I mean, if he's dealing with that and it's not going to get any better, then it doesn't matter whether <laughs> you yeah. know whether that's an excuse or not. It's going to remain a problem. So knowing that that thing exists doesn't doesn't make the problem any better. It doesn't make it go away. Um. I mean, you also have the fact that, like, he did so much of his damage as, like, a scorer and a playmaker, obviously, this year in the pick and roll, and now you have the Nets who are basically switching every pick and roll and then, you know, bringing the auto double team to Embiid on, like, the backside of that switch. But what that leaves Harden with, essentially, is, like, you know, he's not getting those kind of baked in pick and roll reads as like a pocket passer or as a scorer, whether it's like the drive, whether it's the floater, the pull up mid, like now it's sort of just back to him having to play one-on-one ball. And he is not nearly as equipped to do that as he once was. And I mean, that is just illustrated by the fact that he's shooting two for 12 in the paint in this series. He has no explosiveness going to the basket.
0: He has not attempted a free throw in this series, Cash. I know, and Embiid's saying it's uh, it's poor officiating, that he's been hacked and whatever, but I think maybe one or two missed calls, but I think the biggest part of it is he's he's not able to create the advantages he used to be able to create that would then result in helpless defenders being unable to do anything but foul
1: him. Yeah, and I mean, like he's in a situation where he doesn't even need to create those advantages, right? Like you mentioned, like he, he has the opportunity to kind of attack advantages that already exist. He's not going to do that in the way that Tyrese Maxey does, you know, Maxey shot out of Of a cannon. Harden is a slower methodical player, but like, I don't know. You would think that he would still be able to do a little bit more with that. And it just, it hasn't happened. He's he doesn't have the burst right now. And like, that doesn't mean that he can't still be effective. Like he hasn't really had that burst for most of this season. Uh granted it hasn't been nearly this bad, but like he's still managed to be super effective in a, a variety of different ways. You know, like as a, a shooter who can kind of use his strength to chisel out space or or get to the rim and like still find ways to get defenders off balance and draw those fouls. And obviously the passing is is always going to be there. But you know, this was something that I did worry about coming into the playoffs. Was like, man, I still kind of worry a bit about whether there's going to be enough supplemental scoring there at the highest levels of the playoffs, because I don't think Harden is that guy anymore. Maybe Maxi just is that guy and he can keep doing this throughout the postseason. I think there's reason to believe that he can, and that is going to be the the Sixers salvation here. Um, but uh, I, I'm definitely a, more than a little bit worried about the state of James Harden and specifically his ability to to finish inside the arc
0: at this point yeah you and me both uh you want to finish this with some exciting dramatic kings warriors talk let's go we talking stomps we're talking stomps we're talking beams the sacramento kings in their first taste of playoff action in 17 years start the postseason with a bang, hold serve at home, take both games to start the series against Golden State, put the Steph Curry era Warriors in their first 0-2 hole. Plenty of basketball to dissect for sure, but we have to also mention the fact that uh, Draymond Green was tossed from game two in crunch time for stepping, stomping, whatever you want to call it, on DeMontis Sabonis's mid, not even midsection, more like abdomen. I don't know what you'd call After Sabonis did grab his leg, a little bit of gamesmanship there. So I thought the calls on the floor were after review were the right ones in the moment. I thought Sabonis definitely deserves a technical for grabbing Draymond's leg. And I think from Sabonis' perspective, like and like getting stepped on, it was a little bit of like F around and, and find out, you know, you grab Draymond's leg. But at the same time, Draymond can't be st- stomping on guys like that i don't think he necessarily had to make his point quite like that and you know something like that can get you tossed you know how important you are to your team it's crunch time in game two you're on the road you're already down one nothing in the series if not out of sportsmanship at least do it for the benefit of your own team avoid doing like have some restraint in that moment. Draymond's saying, obviously, well, you oh, had my leg. Where do you want me to? I got to put my leg down. got to put my foot down somewhere. I get wanting to punish a guy for grabbing your leg, but come on, Draymond, don't... You're, you bailed Sabonis and the Kings out in that situation because Sabonis, like most people in the NBA, knows that you can bait Draymond into that kind of stuff. So, like, you, you didn't punish Sabonis in this other than for maybe a few seconds while he was in pain. You let him and the Kings off the hook. So... Some bad decision-making from Draymond. I thought he deserved to get tossed. I thought Sabonis deserved to get a tech. But I also don't think Draymond deserves to be suspended because I think the punishment has already been enough. He missed crunch time of a, of game two with his team down one nothing. You don't look convinced. Maybe you think he should be suspended. I don't know.
1: No, I actually don't think he should be. I think I, I'm fine with leaving it at this. If he does come up with like a one-game suspension, I won't. Like be up in arms about it either, and think that it was a bad decision. But I would prefer for him not to be suspended, maybe selfishly, because I would rather that this series, uh, you know, have a a chance to turn into an epic. I do think that it can. Like I, I, I agree, think this has a chance to be. I mean, the Warriors can't win on the road. We know yeah, this. They are now eleven and thirty-two this season on the road. They basically can't lose at home. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of teeing up to go chalk, but with every game being,
0: like, super electric. If Draymond actually... I don't think he will, but if he actually gets suspended for a game and therefore misses, like, one game plus the aforementioned crunch time of game two then Sabonis grabbing his leg was the play of the series. Like just genius from DeMontis knowing yeah, how to get under like, Draymond's Just like skin.
1: LeBron stepping over him in, uh, in game five of the finals was the
0: play of the finals. And that's what I'm saying. As much as I'm joking, it's like, okay, Draymond, I get it. You're this super competitive guy. You wear your heart on your sleeve, whatever. Like, you know, m- people, most people would get annoyed in that situation. But like, you have to have some sort of restraint like especially knowing your own history and knowing what the repercussions have been for your behavior to like not have that restraint in the moment no matter what you think about DeMontis grabbing your leg come on come on Draymond
1: yeah Draymond and restraint don't exactly belong in the same sentence though let's be honest unless we're talking about his drop defense that's he knows how to show restraint there let's uh Let's talk about like actual basketball because this is like easily the most fun series. And like from an aesthetic perspective, from a tactical perspective, like the one that I've gotten the the most enjoyment out of by far. So the big thing to me, if we're just looking big picture, first shot half court possessions through two games, Warriors 101.6 points per hundred, Kings 92.4 points per hundred.
0: Half court has like, not been the issue for the Warriors. The Warriors defense. the
1: Warriors have done a really good job defending the Kings half court offense. I mean, they're I think they've been pretty airtight in terms of like defending the DHO game. They've got, you know, whether it's Looney or Draymond guarding Sabonis, that guy is laying way off. And, you know, they're not they're not switching a ton. Like I have talked before about how I feel like, you know, switching a really good switching defense is basically the the best antidote. To the offense that the Kings run. And we think of the Warriors, you know, at least historically as being this like super switchy defense, but they've done a lot of this just by not switching, right? By just fighting over screens and sort of taking those options away while Sabonis is sort of forced to to make a decision in the middle of the floor, whether he's going to drive and try and eat up that gap, whether he's going to shoot a jumper um, or whether he's just going to keep cycling through options and find something else. The Warriors have done a good job of kind of putting him in in those spots and putting the Kings in those spots where they're not getting exactly what they want. I don't think out of the dribble handoff game, really like this the story of the series so far is transition and it's the offensive glass. Like the Kings pace is really getting to the Warriors, I think. And the Warriors are obviously not helping their own cause on that front because they can't stop turning the ball over. And that is allowing the Kings to get out and transition time after time after time. And especially just like, those absolute killer turnovers at the top of the floor where it's just run outs the other way. Um, There have been like way, way too many of those, but like the Kings are also just running off of warriors misses, right? Like through two games, they're running off of defensive rebounds 41% of the time, like turning 41% of their defensive rebounds into transition possessions. That's insane. And they're running off of makes too. And like, I, I said this on Twitter, like, there were so many times in, in the course of those first couple of games where it felt like the warriors had hit like a momentum swinging type of bucket. And like five seconds later, the Kings had already put the ball in the, in the bucket at the other end, you know, like they just get up the floor so fast and are seemingly like in incredible shape because they are able to keep doing it and don't get tired. And I think it's worn the warriors out these first couple of games, just like it did to so many teams during the regular
0: season, you talk about the Bucs being creaky, and I get that the Warriors aren't quite as, I don't know, what word do you want to use as immobile as the Bucs, but like they are an older team with a lot of miles on their body that has had a very up and down season. Like, yeah, it makes sense that the Kings who thrive in transition, they spent more time in fr- transition than any team in the league this season. They've got an absolute blur as their lead ball handler, Aaron Fox. It makes sense that they would just push the pace push off of makes sure, or like be committed to no matter how we get the ball back whether it's forcing a turnover getting a stop or having to take it out from under our own basket we're running it down your throat and until you can prove that you can keep up with us or stop this we're just going to keep doing it and to your point the kings are obviously fit enough to keep doing it if they can do it for the whole series like they absolutely have the advantage and then the offensive glass to me is like a really weird part of this series because there are matchups that come up in the playoffs where you can see, okay, a really good rebounding team or specifically really good offensive rebounding team against maybe a smaller team or a team that just for whatever reason doesn't clean the defensive glass well, that should be a big factor in the series. But this series wasn't one of those matchups. For one, the Kings weren't a great, they weren't a good offensive rebounding team in the regular season at all. I think they were 23rd. An offensive rebound rate during the regular season at twenty-six point five percent. And the Warriors were a very middle of the pack, like average defensive rebounding team, fifteenth or sixteenth. So far through two games, the Kings are rebounding thirty-seven percent of their own misses.
1: Well, I mean, like Sabone is a big part of it. They've had a hard time dealing with him on the glass. And you know, they're they're playing with Draymond at the five a lot. So they are playing small quite a bit while the Kings are staying big. Like when Domus isn't on the floor, they're throwing Alex Len out there you know like they're at least at the five spot they're fine leaning into size there and they've survived that defensively actually quite well so you know at least up front they definitely do have a size advantage and then I think I don't know to me it's been apparent also just like on the wings like that I don't think that the Warriors wings and guards have done a good job of of boxing out and keeping the Kings off the glass like Harrison Barnes has gotten in there and crashed for a few offensive rebounds like um, I, I think it, it's not just about what's going on in the front court like rebounding and boxing out is a total team effort and like you know I even like remember talking about this with the Wolves uh, a couple weeks back where it's like yeah you brought Rudy Gobert in and your defensive rebounding still stinks because like it can't just be one guy yeah and I don't really think that like Draymond and Kevon Looney are doing anything wrong to like hinder Golden State's defensive rebounding. I just think it has to be more of a team effort. There has to be more of a commitment to to boxing guys out, and the Kings have obviously come in with that being a focus. You know, you mentioned they weren't a great offensive rebounding team during the regular season, but they made a point uh, of doing it in this series, and it's really working for them. So, I think that goes into the whole thing about just sort of wearing the Warriors out, right? Like the yep. relentlessness in transition with their pace and like the relentlessness on the glass, like they're pressing those advantages. And I think in the past, like the Warriors have been even while playing small, a good defensive rebounding team in the past. And I wonder if part of that, I mean, I don't even wonder, I think part of that is that teams were really afraid of golden state in transition. And they were more reluctant to crash the offensive glass because of that. And the Kings just don't, they, they're not afraid of golden state's transi- transition attack. And I think that's really interesting. You know, like they're, it's kind of like they can fight fire with fire and like worst case scenario, if they crash and miss and golden state gets out on the break, it's like, well, that's fine. Like we'll be out on the break the other way, like five seconds later. And they're sort of trusting that ultimately they're going to win those battles. So Mm. I think that's interesting. Um, you know, the, the other big story in the series is the warriors cannot survive with Steph on the bench. They're plus 14 with him on the floor. And minus 25 in just 19 minutes with him on the bench so far. Um, Kerr only played him 37 minutes in that game one, which wasn't enough. He then played him the whole fourth and got him up to almost 41 minutes in game two. And like these again are lung busting minutes, right. With the way that the Kings play. And I think you saw that catch up to him. Like you saw him running out of gas down the end of that game two, And that's, that's something the warriors need to figure out. Like that's a huge problem because pool, I mean, he, he's dealing with an ankle injury, so I don't want to pile on him, but like he was just so unbelievably bad in game two. And like him so far, just being unable to help raise the water level for those Curryless units it, is a big issue. So I don't know that that's something that the, the warriors are going to have to figure out at some point, obviously, but I don't know, just like give the Kings all the credit in the world, right? Like they very much met the moment. They played completely fearless basketball in the wake of, you know, a few Warriors-y mini runs that I think we have definitely seen overwhelm inexperienced teams in the past and snowball into full-on avalanches. And there were definitely times where I expected that to happen and for the Kings to sort of let go of the rope. And they just didn't. Like they were able to answer the bell every single time, got really timely shot-making from De'Aaron Fox. Like, oh my God, has he A been
0: insane. Soon to be inaugural winner of the Clutch Player of the Year Award. Yeah, like I, he has just,
1: he's torn the Warriors drop apart, right? Like when, when Looney's in the game and that's who they're going at and Looney's dropping back, And he kind of, I don't know, like, I don't know what to say about that. Like, because again, Fox has torn it apart. His mid range jump shooting has been unbelievable all season, especially in the fourth quarter. But do you trust yourself to deal with Sabonis on the backside? If you're bringing Looney higher up in those coverages, whether it's as a short roller or on the offensive glass, if there's a miss, like I just, that's where it starts to get dicey and. You know, when it's Draymond, they're more comfortable, you know, switching it. And I guess they they feel like, I don't know. I mean, maybe if Looney's out there, they can stash him on somebody else and then use him to, as like a scram guy so they can switch it and then bring him over. But it, it's, I don't know, it's tough. So they need an answer for that. But Fox has been incredible. Uh, Malik Monk, like his isolation scoring has been unbelievable. That The Warriors have had a really hard time keeping up with him. I'm kind of surprised the Warriors just haven't attacked him. Maybe I'm not surprised. On the other end? Yeah, like that's not really their MO. But I don't know. They've let him off the hook defensively. And I think they got to find more of a way to like make him a liability at that end of the floor. Because he's kind of torching them. And to be honest, like the Warriors defense hasn't really been able to survive with like without both of Wiggins and GP2 on the floor. Because yeah. those are the only two guys who, who have, like, anything resembling a shot against Monk or Fox. So when both Monk and Fox are on the floor, like, the Warriors kind of need to have, like, both of their best point of attack defenders out there as well. Because Clay can't do that anymore. No. You know, DiVincenzo is, like, the next best option. Or I guess Kaminga is. But, like, even Kaminga, like, hasn't really been able to stay in front of Fox. He had a rough few minutes in game two.
0: The one thing I was thinking of watching these first couple of games and even like, you know, doing the playoff uh, content or sorry, the playoff prep type content last week was, I can't remember if it was last episode or two episodes ago, one of our awards related apps. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned how whoever's doing the tracking at home for the Warriors must be way off in their data in the way they're tracking it because their, was it their rim, a rim frequency allowed is so different. Yeah, And on the road, and I should have said it at the time, but it's like, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I think it's very possible the Warriors just are that much worse and feeble defensively on the road and are that much better, at especially, and even at the point of attack. I don't maybe not quite to the way the numbers are suggesting from a tracking perspective, but even if you look at results perspective, and the way the numbers trend defensively, home versus road, like it is actually plausible that that rim frequency number is close to that much of a difference, home versus road. I mean, even when you take everything into account, you're talking about a team that defends like the third best defense in the league at home and the 28th, like the third worst. I know, on I the know, road. but
1: it's still, and, and it applies to their offense too. Like you can, and it it jumped out to me because in postseasons pass, like you could even just see it where you're watching a game and then you look at the numbers afterwards. Doesn't and It add just up. doesn't match up. But it's I, I do think that those numbers are probably better at home than they are in the road, but not to that extent. Because their their rim frequency allowed at home was like 18%, which is just impossibly low. But yeah, I mean look again, I think their their defense in the half court in this series has been pretty good, all things considered. Like I think Draymond's actually been awesome. I think Wiggins has been amazing. Um and, and GP2 has been great when he's been out there. So like they can keep that up and you know clean up some of the stuff on the margins, which is like, you know, definitely a big if for this Warriors team in particular, but if they can do that, they should be okay and I I do sort of expect they'll be able to level this thing up at home. Um but at a certain point, they are going to have to win a road game here, so. Last thing I d- I just want to give credit to the Kings defense. Like I think the Kings have defended really well. And, um, you know, the, the Warriors we saw in that game too, they kind of scrapped a little bit of their, not entirely, but like they went away from all like the split action and like the off ball motion stuff and just sort of resorted to like running a lot of high pick and roll for Steph. And the Warriors got pretty good stuff out of that. But I actually think, you know, Sabonis playing up at the level Uh, And and them kind of scrambling behind that. I thought they all did quite a good job managing those situations. Like I thought Sabonis was was pretty tight with his hedges, like not letting Steph turn the corner, blocking off some of his passing angles. They were in early with their help behind it and scrambling well out of that. Davion Mitchell, I think, you know, as like a, a Steph defender has been excellent in this series. Fox, when he's been asked to do it, has been really good in terms of just like, providing that rear view pressure, denying him the ball some of the time. I think they deserve a ton of credit. Like, that was supposed to be their Achilles heel. And the thing that completely undid them when push came to shove in the playoffs, and it hasn't at all. Like, if anything, they've been, they've looked way better defensively since since the playoffs started.
0: Yeah, and just another reason, too, to shout out Mike Brown, man. I think he's pushed all the right buttons all year and for the first two games of this series. The Kings are just clicking. But this is coming back to Sacramento 2-2, right? You believe that? That's right. <laughs> uh, I think it's going the distance. I think, like I said, I think it's a classic homer series until and then Game Seven is what it is. Um, anyone's game, but I could very much see it being chalk through the first six. Same. Are right, you want to do uh, make or miss and get out of here?
1: Yeah, let's do it quickly. I don't want to spend too much time on this debate, but
0: uh, you. Well, let, okay. So is, is you give me your make or miss, and I'll give you mine.
1: Oh, I thought we were just going to do one today.
0: Oh, okay. Well, you use the block charge one, and then I'll give you one. The one I the one I have will be quick too. You won't have to think too much about it.
1: Okay. Well, I guess we are just like duty bound to to weigh in on this debate because it was you know after the ways in which, Ja and Giannis got injured in those game ones, obviously all the talk was about, uh, you know what what could be done to fix, the uh, the charging rules. Um, and some saying just ban the charge altogether. So make or miss, Cash.
0: The NBA should ban the charge. No, that's a laughable miss. Uh, It is an embarrassing airball for anyone who has thrown that shot up. Like, I'm good with them more strictly enforcing the ones that are supposed to be defensive fouls anyway, when a guy is still sliding and still moving, undercutting a guy who's in midair. Heck, I'm even okay with if they say one of the points of emphasis next year is for those kinds of plays, Guys sliding under airborne players that end up being defensive fouls, personal fouls that are not offensive fouls. I'm even okay with them saying we're going to start making those flagrants because they're dangerous plays. And I think that in turn will also discourage players from taking chances there unless they are very sure where they're in good defensive positioning and cutting off the rim. Having said that, I think it should say it is part of defense and it is a skill when you do it properly with the timing that goes into it, the sacrifice for the team element I like that part of it I like the way a, it can energize a crowd you only average about one point something per NBA game if you look at the total charges that happen this season so I think it is a little bit like much ado about nothing too because now we're talking about injuries I think there you know are already many rules that have been put in place over the last 20 years or whatever that are already in place to protect shooters to help the offensive side of things I don't think we need to be taking away another opportunity for defenses to stop offenses. And I also think like the offensive player bears some responsibility too, right? Like you need to be able to get around a guy sometimes too. You can't just assume that you can be a bowling ball and get to the rim at all times. Again, when it's a a defensive foul, a guy slides under you and you're already airborne. Let's make those flagrants. But if it's a good defensive play where the guy is set and he takes a charge, It should be a charge. And I get that injuries suck. Believe me, no one wants to see injuries. But at the same time, injuries do happen in sports and especially at this level and at this level of competition and in the playoffs when every position possession matters. I just think the idea that it should be banned because it's resulting in injuries is a little too idealistic. Yeah, I mean, I...
1: I've heard people propose, like, just widening the charge circle. Like, I, I'd be open to that. You know, maybe, sure. like, you start assessing flagrant fouls if a guy is, like, clearly undercutting somebody who's already in the air. Those ones are really hard to judge in real time. Like, even the jaw and Giannis plays, it's like... Like, yeah, I guess you could say the guys are still sliding over when those, when those guys are taking off, but it's, like, really bang-bang. It's like they're basically... Getting, you know, establishing position while those guys are gathering the ball. And like, then if you want to say, okay, you can call it this way, if the ball handler is like going into his gather step, that just becomes really hard to judge, I think. And I don't know. So it, it's, I don't think it should be legislated out of the game. I know like some people will say it's not a basketball play, and that I don't agree with. I think it is like it takes a, yeah. a ton of skill and awareness and timing. Like the idea is beat the guy to the spot, right? Exactly. Like that is, That's the nature of playing defense, defense. essentially, is beat the guy to the spot. And for people who want to say, well, it's like, you know, Anthony Davis is sliding over to take a charge on a guy who's, like, a foot shorter than him. In that instance, yes, but, like, most of the time that somebody is stepping in to take a charge, it's actually, like, the other way around. It's a smaller guy stepping in to take a charge on a big guy because a lot of time, like, that's the only way that you can stop him, especially, like, with pick-and-roll defense. And if you are, like, a guard who is the low man and your defense is putting two on the ball. That's like your only recourse. Your, your only way to stop a roller is to slide over and plant that fear of a charge in his head. And you know, if you, if you're a big man in that situation, to your point, yeah, you can't just go through a guy, like figure out a way to get around him, hit a little push shot or a Euro step around him, like yeah. develop a floater. And I get, you know, to the point about player safety, it's like, I don't know. It's, there's no guarantee that like having more midair collisions is going to be safer. Exactly. And it's, I, I don't know that there is actually anything, like, inherently dangerous about the charge. Like, to me, like, the, the play that always makes me hold my breath that feels like the most dangerous play is when a guy is running down somebody else for, like, a chase down block and transition. Two guys yeah. going full speed, and there's likely to be a collision midair there with... A guy's momentum suddenly changing in midair and him not being able to land properly. Like that scares the shit out of me every single time it happens. But what like you wanna ban the chase down block? It's-
0: exactly. I'm I'm just not good with us or like people wanting to chip away at some of the most competitive aspects of the game. Like unfortunately, people are gonna get hurt playing high level sports and i'm not saying i like it's obviously it's not nice to see no one wants to see it but it is gonna happen and you can try to maybe tweak things in ways to make the game safer but you can't start straight up eliminating things and changing rules to avoid the injuries that occur on a very small percentage of a play that actually happens a very small percentage of the time yeah but i'd be open to to
1: moving the charge circle further out like fine Sure, fine. Why not? Obviously get well, get well Ja, get
0: well Giannis. Of course. Of course. All right, my make or miss for you. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a fun or a funny one. So I don't know if you saw Joel Embiid's comments last night when talking about the Nets and Jacques Vaughn, where he randomly said while talking about his first round opponents, I saw after the game, and you started about game one, they kind of took the Nick Nurse route of begging for free throws and calling out the referees. And they did get a lot of calls, which I guess is good for them. So look, last season when the Nets, uh, when the Sixers and Raptors matched up in the playoffs, Embiid was perturbed by the fact that at the time he said uh, Nick Nurse was quote-unquote bitching about the referees or to the referees for calls. We've heard Embiid this season uh, call out nurse saying things like he doesn't even coach to win the game. It's more so about just stopping the opposing stars. He also referenced that randomly another game after the Sixers played to someone else. I can't remember who it was that was throwing uh, doubles and triples at him. Embiid got some measure of revenge, you'd think, last season when they beat the Raptors in the playoffs, but they also matched up in 2019, of course. The Raptors flummoxed him then. They held him to a zero point game later in 2019 with Nurse's defense and Marcus Salling at the time. Perhaps it's like weirdly personal for Embiid. At least it seems that way, given that he's randomly calling Nick Nurse out a year after they matched up when the Raptors aren't even in the playoffs. In the end, make or miss, there's a non-zero chance that Nick Nurse will be coaching Joel Embiid in six months. Um,
1: I guess uh, make... Like, yeah, you have to put it at non-zero because (laughs) Doc Rivers' seat is almost certainly very warm to the point that, you know, I don't know if just any old second round exit would do it. Like if they have a super competitive series against the Celtics, then, you know, I don't know that's necessarily enough to push Doc out the door, but if they're like not close... And, you know, the Sixers decide, yeah, it's it's finally time to move on from Doc. And we know that there's been smoke about Nick Nurse, you know, potentially being ready to part ways with the Raptors who, you know, haven't come to an agreement with them on a contract extension and maybe seem ready to be moving in a different direction, then he could be a you know, a coaching free agent at the top of the pile. So yeah, all those factors, I guess, make it a, a non-zero chance. I don't know. Um, does your suggestion have anything to do with these Embiid comments? Like he's he's like negging Nurse as like a way to sort of court him to... the. No, 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 just, not at all. Not, not at, at all. I just purely incidental. Think it would,
0: yeah, I- incidental. And I just think it would be the most hilarious outcome of this entire situation where like Embiid has been throwing these shots at Nurse. I just think the most hilarious outcome would then be if in like a month we start hearing reports that Nick Nurse is like in consideration for the Sixers job.
1: I mean, it would be a good outcome for Embiid. He doesn't seem to like going up against these gimmicky Nurse defenses, right? So that would be a great way for him to not have to do it anymore.
0: Agreed. All right, I think that's enough for today. I think so too. Fan shout out this week. Quick one. Goes out to Frederick, who works at Scotiabank Arena in Toronto. Van Vliet? uh, No, not Van Vliet. Frederick, I believe, is an usher at the arena. I'm not actually sure, but I ran into him on my way to the media zone uh one of the last few games of the season in Toronto. He stopped me, mentioned he's a big fan, fan of the show. So shout out, Frederick. And the usual call out for all of our listeners. We want to give you a shout out for supporting the show you the way you do. So reach out to us on social media, Twitter at Joey underscore double y O U at Joseph Casharo. Email joe.wolfon at the score.com, joseph.casharo at the score.com. Find me on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe don't like, about the show, whatever. And as usual, we will get you a well-deserved shout out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.